If you're curious to engage with a lot of the topics we explore on the podcast in more creative and embodied ways, we welcome you to join us in Alchemize, our 10-week audio-based program of daily imagination practices intended to disrupt status quo ways of thinking, sensing, relating, and being. To be honest, without any grant support for our show right now, and we did just get turned down by several mainstream environmentalism philanthropies, this program and our Patreon are our primary means of supporting our labor for these free podcasts right now. We really want to remain untethered to corporate interests, and every small contribution to our Patreon or enrollment in our program Alchemize helps to ensure that we can continue producing these vital conversations that feature voices and perspectives often sidelined from mainstream media. So if you value our work and want to dive deeper with us, join us in Alchemize today at greendreamer.com slash alchemize and join our Patreon starting at just $3 at patreon.com slash greendreamer. Thank you so, so much for however you were able to support our work during these critical times. We are so deeply grateful. Green Dreamer is supported by our listener patrons. To support the show starting at just $1 per month and access extended content and potentially join our Green Dreamer network as well, you can head to greendreamer.com support to learn more. Regeneration is something that we really take to heart. It, it's got to be that not only are we doing less bad, but we're doing more good. That was Keith Bowers, the founder and president of Biohabitat, which is a multidisciplinary organization focused on conservation planning, ecological restoration, and regenerative design. This episode 167 is part one of our extended two-part conversation, so stay tuned here as we're about to explore how much we need to focus our efforts on restoration versus conservation, why it is that although we're actually a part of nature and all species do impact their environments in some way, why we've uniquely altered our landscapes in ways that require us to now restore natural habitats and more. Green Dreamer, if you're ready, take a deep breath and let's dive in. Hey, it's Kamea Shane, and this is Green Dreamer, a podcast exploring our paths to ecological balance, intersectional sustainability, and true abundance and wellness for all. If you haven't already, make sure to hit subscribe, and together, let's learn what it takes to thrive in every sense of the word. I used to spend a lot of time as a kid at the beach. My parents owned a beach house, and Although I didn't know it at the time, I think looking back on it, I began to understand how fragile ecosystems are, especially when you're on a barrier island or a beach and you see what happens based on different storm events or the coastal wetlands behind the beach and how the vegetation changes. So that always that, that's always had an impression on me. And, and again, I think I didn't really think about it in those terms when I was a kid, but I think later on it, it came to help sort of shape and form the way I thought about the landscape and the ecology of the landscape. And then something else happened in probably when I was in late high school going into college. And I, I grew up in Baltimore. And of course, the Chesapeake Bay is a big component of the landscape there. 
And I found out about a professor who left the University of Minnesota and came down to the eastern shore of Maryland to begin restoring salt marshes. And this was back again in the late 70s. His name is Dr. Edgar Garbish. He's since passed away. Mm -hmm. He started a nonprofit there called Environmental Concern, which is still going on today. And he really pioneered the whole idea of restoration and specifically restoration of salt marshes. And when I found out about that, I thought, wow, that's pretty cool. You know, not only not only was I thinking about conservation and back then really conservation was the big field in ecology, but that somebody was actually out there doing something and trying to restore an ecosystem and put it back together. Mm-hmm. And I think after that, that really shaped you know, what I wanted to do and and really became my passion. When we think about any wild ecosystem today, they're the way they are because of all the elements of Earth shaping them to be what they are. You know, the climate, humidity, the flow of water, the geological features. And they're also constantly being altered ever so slightly by the biodiversity of life that's there. So in other words, even an intact ecosystem is constantly changing and evolving and not something that's static or has one type of perfect condition. So to be very blunt, I mean, where do you see we started going overboard with our changes and impact on the environment beyond the impact that other species have on their environments to the point where we now need to focus on restoration and rewilding? Right. Yes, that's a a great comment and a great question. You know, I think it all started with agriculture, mm. right? When people when when people started settling in an area in concentrated numbers and having to farm the land for food, that concentration began to alter the landscape surrounding them. And and that's only grown, you know, through through millennia as people have begun to as they have settled in cities as they have altered the landscape to their needs, we've completely altered the landscape from an ecological processing standpoint and from a biodiversity perspective. Mm. And so really a, a couple of things that have happened there. One is obviously just the loss of habitat for species, the direct loss because we're converting that land either into ag agriculture, we're converting it for mining or extracting resources, or we're converting it for our homes, for our roads for our shopping, for all of the other needs that we have. But I would say one of the biggest threats now is the the habitat that is left is being fragmented, right? So we're cutting through habitat. We might have pieces of habitat all around us, but that doesn't function the same way as large intact habitat does. So that's one of the areas that we really we're really looking at as a firm and and as in the work that we do is how do we how do we take these sort of isolated patches of habitat and how do we both expand them but also reconnect them to each other because that's really how you get species to move and how you increase or preserve the gene pool in species when you when you have species that are coming in and moving out Right. So that's really critical in biodiversity. In environmentalism, there's this idea of conservation and then there's restoration. Based on the amount of impact that we've already had on our planetary ecosystems and environments, how much of our efforts do you think we should be allocating towards conservation versus restoration? 
Yeah. So I think any rest, any good restoration ecologist would would tell you that conservation has to be the first move. We need to we need to be thinking about conserving the habitat and and land for ecological processes first and foremost. E.O. Wilson, you know, has a, a effort out an initiative out now. And for those of folks that don't know E.O. Wilson, he's a uh, professor at Harvard, and he is advocating that half of the earth, half of our terrestrial lands and half of our oceans should be set aside for conservation purposes. And so first it's sort of do no harm, right? Conserve what we can. And then we also recognize that we have altered the landscape so much that conservation alone isn't going to be enough, even if we are to to conserve that much land and water, which is pretty, I mean, it's, it, that's a, a real stretch. And unfortunately, it's pretty doubtful we'll be able to do that. But hopefully we can start making headway into that. But, but beyond that, we need to be thinking about restoration. So we need to be thinking about how can we restore these landscapes that have been degraded. Like I said before, some of them have been degraded through fragmentation. We have invasive species that are degrading habitats. We have climate change and, and these habitats are going to be shifting over time. So how do we, how do we identify those, those habitats and those species that are going to be shifting and how do we give them enough room on the landscape to shift over time? That's going to be really important. And then there's this whole idea out there in the scientific community about trophic levels and trophic levels are basically you know you have carnivores and carnivores will eat herbivores and herbivores will you know eat plants and so you've got this uh food web and what we've done is we've essentially chopped off a lot of the top of that food web so a classic example of that would be the wolf right mm-hmm. we we basically decimated the wolf population in in the continental United States. And because we've decimated the wolf population, then the white-tailed deer or elk have become really prolific, right? They don't have the predators that they once had. And because they become really prolific, they're all of a sudden increasing or over-consuming a lot of herbaceous plants and a lot of understory in our forests and our grasslands, which then causes a whole chain reaction in the biodiversity of those areas. Right. Mm-hmm. So so even if we even if we conserve areas right now, if we don't think about restoring back some of the species that were lost and some of the habitat for those species, we'll never fully restore, you know, the, the ecological, a really robust and rigorous ecological processes and functions that are needed for the landscape. Mm-hmm. So those are the some of the things that we're looking at in sort of our restoration practices. First, do no harm. And second, how can we begin integrating restoration into the projects that we work on to try to at least address some of these issues that we've seen over time happen? Right. And this is why we need to increasingly focus on the idea of regeneration, because maintaining what we have left already in of itself is not sustainable in the long term. Exactly right. You're exactly right. Yeah. And and regeneration is something that we really take to heart. It, it's got to be that not only are we doing less bad, but we're doing more good, mm-hmm. right? That, that we're not only are we trying to minimize the impacts to the landscape and whatever we're doing, whether it's agriculture, whether it's resource extraction, or whether it's development, 
but we're actually trying to do it in a way that we're conserving life and we're giving life back. We're setting up conditions to to really embellish and enhance and restore life. Mm. Well, our ecosystems over time have evolved over thousands and millions of years to have that biodiversity and the complexity that they have. And that complexity is what makes our ecosystems balanced and resilient. So when we've already wiped out that complexity and are attempting to restore a degraded ecosystem that's already suffered biodiversity loss, what would our varied forms of restoration look like in practice, perhaps alluding to some of your work at Biohabitats, and what is actually possible in terms of how much complexity we can facilitate bringing back? Yeah, wow. We could spend days on that question. (laughs) That's great. Uh, A few things. One is, so it all depends on the context. And and by context, I mean where you are on the landscape, right? So we could be on the, the coast of Georgia and looking at salt marsh restoration. And because there's been little development impact in many areas to do salt marsh restoration there would be relatively easy and relatively predictably successful. And because you're not having a lot of outside or, or adjacencies, the, the adjacent influences on, on that project. And you've got a, what we call a good reference ecosystem. In other words, there's a lot of salt marshes there already. We can learn from them. We can study them. And when we go to restore the salt marsh, we, we can apply those lessons learned to that. If, if then if you're sort of talking about you're getting into more from more rural areas to more urban areas along that transect, then it becomes a bit more tricky. It becomes what is influencing the land that we're trying to restore Um, And we need to look at everything from climate change from a global perspective all the way down to is the hydrology, the way water flows across the landscape or or the way water flows from a groundwater standpoint. Has that been altered upstream or up watershed? And how is that influencing the site or even nutrient cycles? Um, Are we seeing increases in nutrients in the soil or are we seeing invasive species recruited into the ecosystem and from off-site? And how do we then address those issues? So it becomes pretty complex there. Mm. One of the things that I, I think about a lot is when I started in restoration back in the 70s and 80s, it was really before the alarm bells went off about climate change. And it was really about you know, we've got these ecosystems, we're beginning to learn what's wrong with them, we're beginning to think about having to restore them. And, and I like to use the term, we're not restoring the past, we're restoring the future. Because we, we can look at the past as an analog to say what's worked in the past, and why are things working from an ecological function standpoint. But we're really dealing with the future because with climate change and changes in nutrient cycles and changes in hydrology, we've got to be really looking at when we restore an ecosystem, it has to be functioning and resilient to the future. Mm -hmm. So those are some of the things that we take into account in the projects that we work on. Well, looking through the work that you do, something that really stood out to me is this idea of urban ecology. Given that we can't obviously turn our cities back into wild landscapes, what does it mean that we should look at our urban environments and cities as ecosystems? And what can that perspective inspire in us? Yeah, so urban ecology has become one of the big areas of work that we're involved in right now. And and a couple things on urban, urban ecology. One is that 
I always like to pair urban ecology with landscape rewilding. And the reason I say that is because we can do all the urban ecology work in the world. And if we're not out also paying the same amount of attention and putting in the same amount of effort of rewilding our rural areas to really preserve native indigenous populations of species and biodiversity and ecological functioning, then all the urban ecology we do will be for naught, right? So I think it really needs to be paired with with uh, looking at, at our regional landscape and what we're doing on our regional landscape. That being said, there's a lot of work and a lot of research and a lot of progress in urban ecology over the last 20 or 30 years. We just finished up a green network plan for the city of Baltimore where they were looking at vacant lots and how would they repurpose these vacant lots into a green network that weaves itself through the city. Um, And then how would that work with restoring eco ecological services such as how how could you do it in such a way that you're you're addressing stormwater runoff you're filtering water for water quality you're lowering the heat island effect um, by planting more trees so you're changing the microclimate of this of the city you're you're bringing in more biodiversity that sort of thing So we did that for Baltimore. We also worked on one for Kansas City, where we were looking at the metropolitan area of Kansas City and looking at a a pretty extensive green network plan. But what's been really interesting over the past couple of years, the city of Atlanta has hired us to do an urban ecology framework for the city. And that's been pretty cool. They recognize that they will be growing like many cities, especially in the southeast of the United States. They'll be adding probably close to a million people over the next uh, 40 years. And they recognize that ecology needs to be one of the focuses of how they grow as a city. Mm. And so we've been working with them and we've been looking at really five different aspects of urban ecology. One is biodiversity and how does the city connect up regionally with those with river and stream systems like the Chattahoochee River or other forested areas that span the the, uh, Piedmont of the southeastern United States. So number one, if it's an isolated, if all we're doing is looking at it in isolation and not looking at it in that that regional landscape, then again, it's not going to have as much effect from an ecological perspective. So we want to take a sort of 40,000 foot level step back and say, how does Atlanta how's the ecology of that city interact with the ecology of the surrounding area? Mm. And then the second thing we're doing is we're looking at ecosystem services. So again, those things that I had pointed out before, how, how do we get clean air, clean water, healthy soils, reducing the heat island effect, all those things are really important. And can we develop a framework for the city that really promotes and enhances those ecosystem services And then the third thing that we're looking at is environmental justice issues and social equity issues. In other words, where is the green space in Atlanta? Who has access to that green space? What is the quality of that green space from an ecological perspective? And where is the pollution? Who who is subjected to that pollution? How can we begin changing the sort of parameters that talk about environmental justice and social equity within an ecological framework. 
And then the, the other area that we're looking at is really then how do you take all this and how do you how do you embed it into policies? How do you embed it into comprehensive planning that cities and towns do? How do you embed it into the zoning code? How do you embed it into development standards and protocols for buildings, and streets and roads and infrastructure? And so we're looking at how can this urban ecology framework not only provide that ecological green space for the city, but how can it be done in a strategic way and in a way that really integrates into the urban fabric? Mm-hmm. So I think urban ecology is is really something that we all should be looking at. And, and I think we're making great strides at figuring out how to bring these ecological systems back into these cities. And, you know, you have programs out there like the lead program for the the leadership in environmental and energy design, or you have the living building challenge, ways of looking at building buildings or building neighborhoods that integrate some of these ideas in. And really, I think the whole idea of urban ecology is that you take those ideas and you really look at it from a system standpoint and a whole system standpoint throughout the urban area. So how much of urban ecology can come from grassroots efforts and how much of it has to involve this top-down approach? Because it does involve, for example, maybe taking into account the whole network of what the city would look like or what an entire urban landscape would look like. Yeah, I'm I'm a firm believer that you have to have both. You have to have both people that are championing it from a a sort of a top down and whether that's the director of parks or public works or the mayor or a city council, I think you've got to have some champions there that are really pushing the idea of, of urban ecology and, and embedding that into their city. Then, then you have to have some really strong grassroots organizations, um, whether they be, nonprofits or whether they are private entities that are really also pushing from the ground up. And we have found that when you've got both, that's where you have the most success. So the one example I gave before, if you can embed the idea of of reconnecting urban green spaces into your zoning code, and so future development that's zoned in a way that actually provides for or enhances the idea of reconnecting green space or in your building codes. And so some of that, you know, we can advocate from the ground up that that be done. But again, if you've got some folks that are in those agencies that are in power from a political perspective to really champion those ideas, it it goes so much further and it goes a lot faster, too, when you can do that. Mm. So it sounds like no matter where we stand, no matter our backgrounds, we each have our own roles to play in this. Oh, I think so. I think um, I know we're all really busy um, (laughs) and we've all got families or we've got other commitments. But to attend a planning meeting with your town or city or a zoning meeting when they're redoing the zoning and advocating for things like that is really important. And and. A lot of times we come, you know, we being sort of grassroots efforts come out of the woodwork when something gets rezoned or something gets built when the zoning's already been approved, but we're not there when they're actually formulating the zoning plans and we're given a chance to, to, to interact at that time. And so those are the times where 
I think from an advocacy standpoint, a lot of people can can be involved and really make a difference out there. Mm, that's really important because I feel like a lot of times we feel like we're already stuck in a broken system, but we forget that we can be a part of the planning for future systems to ensure that they get built out the way that we want them to be. That's right. Very, very much so. Yeah. And perhaps you can clarify the exact numbers for us, but today our restoration industry is really growing and is employing, I believe, more people than the coal industry. My understanding was that uh, we got to where we are today because extraction, production, and manufacturing are almost always more profitable than not extracting, but just conserving environments as they are. So where where is all this investment and capital put into restoration now coming from and what's changed so that now it's become profitable to do restoration work? Much of it's come from the recognition that we, from a water quality perspective, that we're polluting our waters. And so back in the 70s, when the Clean Air and Clean Water Acts were passed by the Nixon administration and the Wilderness Act was passed, that set up a regulatory framework to begin regulating those issues, right? So at that time, when the Clean Water Act was passed, what got attached to that were regulations on wetlands and waters of the United States, which then really forced people to think about what impacts they were having or are having on those wetlands and waters of the U.S. And waters of the U.S., I mean rivers and streams and lakes and springs and seeps and coastal areas. And so that regulatory framework set up a mechanism in which not only did we have to start paying attention to that, we had to start identifying those resources. We had to start beginning of thinking of ways of developing land in a way that wouldn't impact those resources. So we're looking at conservation measures or, or avoidance measures. And then if we did impact those resources, we began thinking about, well, how could we mitigate or offset our impacts to those by doing restoration? So really in the U.S., I think the, the restoration market really got started again, back in the late 70s and early 80s with this idea of, well, from the Clean Water Act and, and the idea that we need to be looking at our wetlands and streams and rivers. And in fact, that's sort of what started our business. Our business, Biohabitats, we started back in the early 80s when those regulations really started to take hold and we were getting calls to help folks think about avoiding and mitigating and restoring some of those resources. And then at the other the other thing that happened back then was in Maryland at least they passed the Chesapeake Bay critical area legislation recognizing the decline in the Chesapeake Bay and requiring a lot of jurisdictions around the bay to develop this over, overlay zone along the bay's edge to basically look at how could they restore habitat in that zone, how could they conserve habitat in that zone, and how could you do development in such a way that you're really reducing the impacts to water quality. And, and so that whole regulatory aspect really gave us, and it gave a lot of other, I think, firms in the restoration market the impetus to kind of move forward. And I would say since then, a lot of work, a lot of people have begun to realize the 
both ecological and economic benefits of doing restoration. And so a good portion of our work now is strictly related to people that just want to do restoration for restoration's sake and not are necessarily being forced to through regulations, Mm -hmm. which I think is a really good sign in the restoration industry. And do we know how our current rates of restoration compare to our continued rates of conventional development that leads to destruction and fragmentation? Yeah, I mean, I don't I couldn't give you any any specific statistics, but I could say that we are still we're still way behind on what we need to restore and what we need to conserve. And so we're still developing we're we're doing better at developing areas and converting landscapes but we still have a long way to go so there's a, still a lot of need for restoration out there there's a lot of need for conservation and and there's a lot of need to figure out as we develop more land because our population is increasing and we've got to find places for people, how can we do it in such a way that we're, again, not only minimizing the impact, but regenerating these ecological systems when we go to do either redevelopment or new development. And is there anything that stands out to you as the types of ecological restoration that are most urgent, perhaps maybe in the face of our climate crisis? Yeah, a couple things. That's a, that's a great question. One is, I think that We still need to be paying attention to our wetlands, our streams, and our rivers. I think they're vitally important, and they transect, you know, large areas of the landscape. And not only only do we need to be thinking about them from a water quality perspective, but we also need to be thinking about them from a biodiversity corridor perspective. So they provide great corridors for species movement up and down and throughout a watershed. And so by, by... conserving and restoring these corridors that have been impacted by various land use changes, not only can we hopefully enhance and restore water quality, but also aquatic biodiversity, all the species that live in the streams and rivers, but also all the species that use those corridors in the riparian areas or those areas adjacent to the streams and rivers to move about, to breed, to feed, and they become really important areas. So that's that's probably the first thing. The second thing is with climate change, we know that species are going to move. Their home ranges are going to move based on changing climates, based on changing rainfall patterns, based on changing temperatures. And so if we're really if we really think about ways of preserving or conserving species in their habitat, we've got to begin thinking about anticipating where that how is that habitat going to change is it going to move northward is it going to move upslope what's going to happen to that habitat based on those climate changes and are we giving enough room for that habitat to move are we are we actively facilitating the idea that this habitat will change over time and we're allowing those changes just like you talked about in the very beginning about how nature is always evolving. Are we allowing enough room on the landscape to allow those habitats to evolve over time and move across our landscape? Mm-hmm. So I think, I think that's really important. And then the other thing that I talked about earlier about pairing up urban ecology with rewilding some of our areas. You know, there's a great, 
There's a great nonprofit out there called the Wildlands Network, and they advocate for rewilding corridors throughout the continental United States. So uh, one of those corridors is is um, the Y to Y corridor, which is Yukon to Yellowstone. Uh, another corridor is the spine of the continent, which goes from Yellowstone down to Mexico. And they're also working on these corridors throughout the East Coast and along the Gulf Coast and the boreal forest of, of Canada. And so the idea that we can reconnect up these regional landscapes, which in, in turn will give chances for habitat to migrate as climate change happens as well. But also, more importantly, it'll give enough room to reintroduce some of these keystone species that we've lost or have dwindled down like the wolf or the grizzly bear or beavers or, you know, other other species that really provide, really help manage the landscape from an ecosystem process standpoint. This concludes part one of a two-part conversation with Keith Bowers of Biohabitats. Stay tuned for the next episode, episode 168, as we're going to further explore what it means to support more technology-driven, innovative, and new solutions to our environmental challenges, as opposed to solutions based more on biomimicry, why simply greening our urban spaces without looking at habitat connectivity and the specific choices of species may be inadequate for maximizing our positive impacts with restoration and more you can sign up for our green dreamer digest to stay updated and receive weekly news stories on restoration regeneration and resilience at greendreamer.com and if you want to come say hey to let me know that you're tuning in you can find me on instagram at kamea shane thank you so much for tuning in and i will catch you shortly in our concluding part two of this conversation